Heading into game 11 of the 1972 season, already the Dolphins were the talk of the NFL and the nation. Ten wins, no losses, and now a chance to sparkle under the Monday night lights with the ABC cameras set up at the Orange Bowl and up in the TV booth, the man everyone loved to hate, Mr. Howard Cosell. This is Josh Lewin. My apologies for a bad Cosell impression, but the impression the Dolphins were leaving by this point, unmistakably fantastic. That so-called no-name defense making plays, a backup 38-year-old quarterback throwing for critical third-down conversions, and a three-headed running back monster in the backfield comprised of Butch and Sundance, Zonka and Kick, but also now a third musketeer, the electric Mercury Morris. The coach's son, David Shula, watched all those guys up close that year as a teenager, and he recalled those running backs like this. Well, just how talented they were. I mean, you have a guy in Larry Zonka who, in 1972, was 6'5", 250 on game day. And and he would be a Hall of Famer, Pro Bowl player today, in today's game. Uh, He was just that talented. Uh, Tremendous physical presence. Uh, could catch the ball, you know, run inside, get outside, uh, um, and just such a great leader. You know, there was nobody that that was tougher that ever has ever played the game, in my estimation, and that pervaded the team. And then you had the, you know, the dual-headed uh, running backs in, in Jim Kick, who was the tactician, the great route runner, great pass catcher, great blocker for Zonka and, and in pass protection. Um and then Mercury Morris that just lit it up. You know, he goes in the game and now all of a sudden, you know, went sideline to sideline. The defense had to be uh, cognizant of, of trying to stop the Dolphins, you know, outside running game. And, and then, you know, if he caught, uh, they used to like to trap up inside and, and he popped through there and, and boom, he was gone. He was lightning. And, you know, what a great one-two punch those two guys were. And, and how they handled it during the season uh, was – you know, they were both very competitive, wanted the ball every snap, like everybody, every running back does. And and uh, I remember my dad, you know, telling stories years later of, of you know, if uh, if Kick had had more carries than than Mercury Mars, uh, Mercury was in his office on Monday morning complaining about playing time and then and vice versa. But but again, they would, you know, express their uh, frustration. Uh, they wanted the ball, but they they didn't let it uh, bring the rest of the team down or hurt their performance. But the Dolphins had star power at running back, no doubt, and also at wide receiver with the classy all-pro Paul Warfield. But on this particular night, the star that shined the brightest belonged to a backup receiver who had his moment in the sunshine. Number 82, Otto Stowe, would end up with the game ball, and the Dolphins would end up 11-0. Let's slow it down, though. Let's get back to that Monday night football crew of Dandy Don, Frank Gifford, and the mouth that roared, the opinionated lawyer-turned-sportscaster Howard Cosell. Dolphins fans universally thought Cosell had it in for Miami. He never seemed to give the team its due. So there was heightened interest in what he would say and how the team would perform up against a Monday night TV lineup that was otherwise uh, not exactly built for football fans. Over on CBS at 9 o'clock Eastern was Here's Lucy, Season 5, Episode 12. An aristocratic European prince hires Lucy as his personal escort, falls in love with her, and decides he wants to make her his princess. Sorry, hard pass. Uh, On NBC, they had a movie going. The Private Navy of Sergeant O'Farrell 
with Bob Hope, Phyllis Diller, and Gina Lollabrigida. As the U.S. Army moves out of a Pacific island toward Tokyo at the close of the war, the island is turned into a vacation spa by an ingenious sergeant who has everything going his way, until an enemy sub sinks the ship, bringing his ample supply of beer. Hmm. Now, maybe some other time, but no, not tonight, because 9 o'clock on ABC. Monday Night Football, it said in the TV Guide, St. Louis Cardinals versus Miami Dolphins at Miami. Frank Gifford, Don Meredith, and Howard Cosell report. And what they reported on was a lackluster first half, only one touchdown in two quarters, the Dolphins and Cardinals combined. But the Dolphins found their gear soon enough. They cruised to win number 11. So in week 11, the cast was off Bob Greasy's leg, but someone else's leg now had a cast on it. Larry Seipel, the Dolphins' punter since year two, had damaged ligaments the game before. Seipel wasn't one of the premier punters of the times. The distance of his kicks weren't necessarily spectacular, but he was a master at hitting him high, preventing returns. And that's important against a team like St. Louis that had Mel Gray and some other guys that could really run him back. Only nine of Seipel's 36 punts had been returned at all in 72. And Seipel was more than just a punter. He described himself in characteristic Dolphins fashion as not a great athlete, but actually he had been the superstar running back of his high school team in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and he had a solid college career as a running back for Kentucky. Now he was occasionally a Dolphins wide receiver as well as a special teams guy, and for now he'd be out at least two weeks, maybe the rest of the season, depending on how the ligaments healed up. So a substitute punter was found in Billy Lothridge, a guy that had actually finished second in the Heisman voting in 1963 behind Roger Staubach as a quarterback and punter for Georgia Tech. He was retired and watching on TV at home in Georgia when Seipel got hurt three days earlier. And, well, now here he was in Miami. And, yes, this would be the lone Monday night football appearance for the Dolphins. The St. Louis Cardinals were supposed to have been a pretty good opponent, but they were just 2-7 and seven with a tie. And as for Cosell's supposed dislike of Miami, it's said by those who knew him well he actually had great admiration and affection for Coach Shula and his players. He certainly admired Zonka and Warfield. He liked to compare Warfield to Muhammad Ali, of all people, who of course was all about integrity and dignity and a professional presentation. We mentioned Warfield was out for this game, and this game's first half was filled with errors and penalties, and then a St. Louis fumble resulting in a Dolphins drive that they finished up with a Jim Kick two-yard touchdown run. The Cardinals would miss a 27-yard field goal and then watch Dick Anderson pick off a pass. Said Howard Cosell, and I quote, What a money player that Dick Anderson is. He's got a nose for the football. Anderson and Jake Scott were out there making play after play, the two safeties. And Scott recalled very fondly for us by his teammate Howard Kinday. Dick Scott was a special guy. Jake Scott was a... uh... I, I, I guess there's two words to describe Jake Scott. That's Jake Scott. <laughs> Jake was a, uh, he was a whole package, man. He really was. He was a terrific athlete. One hell of a guy. He uh, marched to a little different drummer. He was. He didn't, uh, he was a, uh, he did everything his way, except in the football field, he did it Shula's way. But I mean, he was just uh, pretty much a free spirit. And I love Jake Scott. He was one hell of a guy. I remember that, uh, that when Jake got the MVP in Super Bowl Seven, when we come in, we was all sat around the locker room and hugging each other and pouring champagne and laughing. And 
And uh, Jake said, and I remember this very distinctly. Jake said, you know, we don't realize what we've just done. And I think Zonk's going to put that in his book. But uh, it was really a, a special occasion. But Jake Scott was a special guy, no question about it. And Dick Anderson. There was two best safeties in football. And yeah, Anderson getting the glory here with the interception. But things weren't all rosy for Miami on this night. Garrow Yepremian had a field goal attempt blocked. The ball skipped off to the right, and Garrow should have just fallen on it, but instead he picked it up and made a weird attempt to propel the ball forward with that right arm. The ball went nowhere. It hit somebody in the back. It fell to the ground where it was smothered by the Cardinals. Put a pin in that play when we get to Super Bowl Seven. It stayed 7-0, and later in the half, the Cardinals' Jim Bakken, who had missed earlier, made the old-style kick-it-with-the-toe 49-yard field goal, cut it down to 7-3 just before halftime, although at least Garrow was able to add a field goal for the Dolphins at the halftime gun, so the lead was now 10-3 at the break. And in the second half, well... The Miami offensive line just tore the Cardinals apart. Earl Morla had plenty of time to throw thanks to the work of that old line led by the stud center Jim Langer and the two all-pro guards that flanked him, Bob Kuchenberg and Larry Little. Little, the Miami native, was really starting to find his groove. I took a lot of pride in it, being the only uh, guy that grew up, although I wasn't born here, I grew up here, and uh, knowing, playing in the Orange Bowl, Knowing when I was a kid, when I went to the Orange Bowl, I couldn't sit in the bleachers. We had to sit in the, uh, uh, in, I mean, you can sit in the stand, you had to sit in the bleachers, the blacks. And uh, when I went to see the University of Miami play, to be one of the ones to be on the team that played in the Orange Bowl and went on to uh, go undefeated. Now with Little and Kuchenberg just mauling Cardinals defenders, Earl Morrill had time to do his thing, and in the third quarter, he found Otto Stowe. Otto had beaten his man by a good five yards. He turned back to the ball on Morrill's pass to pull it in while falling onto his back in the end zone, his first touchdown of the year. He had been the number one draft choice the year before out of Iowa State, hit Otto Stowe, and he'd been watching and learning from Paul Warfield. And finally, with Warfield still nursing a sore ankle, it would be the understudy stepping in beautifully for the star. And of all things, he got to do it against a team he had followed growing up. Well, I grew up in Springfield, Illinois. It's about 100 miles from St. Louis. And uh, it pretty much had the, had the only professional um, sports team uh, in the area. So I would uh, always fantasize about maybe playing uh, against them or uh, playing with them. But uh, I didn't realize that uh, it was going to happen. Oh, but it did happen. Went off like a Roman candle on this night. Bob Greasy was a fan of Otto Stowe, even though it was not Greasy but Morrill who got to work with Otto on this memorable night. Otto was uh, Otto was good. Uh, you know, we worked a lot at practice just because if anything happened to Warfield or Twilly, uh, or any of the receivers, he was going to be in there. So uh, we were we were working and practicing in case something happened to those main guys. And uh, he he could run and he could catch. He was a solid receiver. Yeah, six catches for 140 yards and two long touchdowns by the time the night was over for Otto. Stowe putting on a show. And we asked Paul Warfield to tell us about the guy who'd followed him around like a puppy wanting to learn from the master all year. Well, 
I was there a little bit taller than I, um, about two or almost three inches taller than I. A very, very gifted uh, athlete, excellent athletic ability, extremely quick feet, had the ability to make razor sharp, sharp cuts, uh, did all the things that I thought that I could do and even did them much better. Uh, had he not sustained an injury later on in his career, I thought that he was going to be an outstanding uh, pass receiver in the National Football League. Truly an outstanding pass receiver. Unfortunately, his career was shut, cut a little bit short as a result of the injury that he uh, sustained. Otto still would eventually get a second touchdown in this game. St. Louis had come on a safety blitz and Morrill was able to get rid of the ball and find Otto all alone again. Stowe was awarded the game ball, and he kept it under his seat as he faced the unusual sight of reporters at his locker after the game. Marlon Briscoe said Steele was dressed like Sly Stone after the game, something Stowe would neither confirm nor deny 50 years later. One more guy to chime in on number 82, the guy who roomed with Otto Stowe, the backup quarterback, Jim Dalgazo. Well, you know, but again, quarterbacks and receivers, so we were, we had that 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 we had that bond because of what we did and and Otto was uh he was my first roommate and of course I, I might have been there two days and he would have needed a new roommate if I would have got cut the third day but but I, I stayed around we became very very close uh very smart guy uh he he, he wasn't crazy about Miami for, you know for obvious reasons as it turns out especially then you know I knew it after I knew it from conversations because I knew when his girlfriend was coming to town, I said to Sandra, you know, they're going to come over and say, I'm sure she's white, you know, I said, because Otto gave every indication that she was white. And in those days, you know, being a black and white couple in Miami in 1971 was not the greatest thing in the world uh, for for a guy. So he he played his cards, uh, kept them close to his vest. But when we came over for a visit, sure enough, she was White and we became best buddies. She taught my oldest boy how to ride a bike, for Christ's sake, uh, Judy Stowe. So, um, but we were, I loved him. He was a tremendous receiver, 6'3. He could elevate, he, could, he was fast. I mean, he was a prototype of the receivers that exist today. Of course, at that time, there weren't that many, but um, yeah, he was going to be a superstar. And of course, he was leading the league with Dallas when he, he got injured. And, uh, it shortened his career, but I think he would have been a superstar if he would have not got hurt. Well, Jim mentioned Stowe would ultimately get traded to the Cowboys after 1972. Stowe was a first-class wide receiver prospect on a team that was four deep in talent. Dolphins' first selection in the draft the year before we mentioned, taken just three picks after those St. Louis Cardinals chose future Hall of Fame tackle Dan Deardorff. He had been picked ahead of quarterbacks Joe Theismann and Ken Anderson, ahead of star defensive end Lyle Alzado, but he never would ascend to those kind of Pro Bowl heights. On this night, though, in 72, he was a total stud in Miami. And some of the other lesser-known players had their moments as well. Lloyd Mumford had a 29-yard interception return for a score, and all of a sudden, this was a 31-10 game halfway through the fourth quarter. That would end up being the final. On that pick six, on an overthrow by Jim Hart, there was a great block from linebacker Mike Colon, a guy who Dick Anderson remembers very fondly. Well, Mike Colon, you know, was was a quiet, uh, very religious individual, but he was never made a mistake. And he, when he hit you, he hit you. And so he was a great outside linebacker um, and uh, a great teammate. 
but you know, with some of the other people being a little bit loud, he just stayed quiet, but did did his job uh, exceptionally well. Now, Colin with the block, Mumford with the pick six. There was also a fumble recovery by the ferocious Bill Stanfield, a defensive lineman who always seemed to get lost in the sauce somehow, but his teammate Vern Den Herter was in on him all the way. Well, Bill was was just a great person. He was a he was a good old boy uh, from from Georgia. Uh, he had uh, a lot of talent, and but he was easygoing, and uh, he liked to keep me early in my career. I don't know how many years I had to play uh, and, and start with the Dolphins before he stopped calling me Rook, and. Um, but it was all meant in, in in good fun, and I just uh, thought a lot of uh, total a lot of Bill. He was uh, he was just a great guy. Just another guy who seemed anonymous on this '72 Dolphins team, but just quietly made plays. One of the other anonymous types speaks out now. Eddie Jenkins, who went on to be a lawyer, he watched and learned a lot from everyone on the team. Practice squad guys were. Uh, I wouldn't say we didn't get respect, but we certainly had the Rodney Dangerfield kind of chip on the shoulders because, you know, we weren't, they weren't game, game planning for us unless somebody got hurt. So we were playing, the, we were the offense for the defense a great majority of the time. And so when you're doing that, and OJ's, when we're playing against uh, Buffalo, I was OJ Simpson for the week. So you were getting all kind of hits. So I had to act like, I had to act like OJ. Larry Lewis to call me, he used to call me motion because OJ had so much motion in his hips and legs that I tried to always run like him in practice. And then I remember running like him and I remember uh, Nick Bonacani coming across and giving me a shiver right across my neck and knocking me down. Bang. And I, I thought this was supposed to be no non-contact. No, non <laughs> so I get up and get in Nick's face and Nick says, Hey, Eddie, hey, man, cool down, man. You know, we both come from good Catholic schools, man. Just chill out, man. You'll be okay, man. So I guess he figured if he were to know the name and I were the Holy Cross, we were cool. You know what I mean? But, but it was people like that. It was, it was that competition that you saw when you had a chance to go on the other side. You just saw how this defense was operating like a machine. And then you saw how the, like I said, the, uh, the offensive players were, um, like the the receivers were uh, their, their footwork was excellent. Most of the running backs, it wasn't. We had Carl Tassif, who was Don Shula's best friend, and you know, and Carl was supposed to be a hell of a player, and and, uh, and Carl was even better than Shula. And Tassif really was kind of like one of these guys that you let hang around. So he didn't have much to say. Uh, you know, how, how many feet back are you going to be? You know, is it seven and a half or ten? He would, you know, mess with your line a little bit, but running back coaches don't really do too much in terms of correcting, you know, what you do. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's mostly the play calling, and if you make a mistake, they're up your butt. But other than that, they didn't do that. So mostly you're sitting back and you're watching some of these players, like I said, watching Larry Zonka, one of the hardest working players, one of the most respected people in the league. I mean, Larry was, I think, one of the first places by persons or players to get a um it was uh and they would call it unsportsmanlike or uh it was it was a it was a personal file for actually straight arming and 
a, a giving person a, a straight arm and, and, and knocking them down, knocking them out. You know? so, I mean, how does that happen? A running back, you know, gets a gets a penalty for that. Uh, so, so you get to see these little things about people. You get to see Larry Little pulling and outrunning the running backs. You know, I mean, Larry Little was as fast. It looked like he was fast as some of the running backs. You see Mercury Mars shivering. He used to have this little hip shiver going back and forth that he would like with blowing bubble gum. And he would like play around with you, uh, you know, and just, and look like he was just having fun. They didn't look like he was practicing. So, you know, so there are little things that you take from everybody. Marv Fleming, the steady guy. You watched Marv when he was with Green Bay. Probably the best blocking tight end in the game. Uh, you know, he had, uh, you know, he didn't have great hands, but the things that you threw to him, he caught, you know. So you get to see that, and then you see the personalities in the locker room. You see, uh, you know, uh, just how the, the line interacts as, as players and friends and get in the locker room. You see a couple of them smoking cigarettes and chilling out and uh, just talking shop. Just great, great, great. Talk, man. It was just good watching this thing. That's your 11th round pick out of Holy Cross right there, Eddie Jenkins. Total team effort on this particular Monday night. Howard and Don Meredith and Frank Gifford had to have enjoyed it. Certainly 80,000 Dolphins fans did as the team was indeed now 11 and 0. Final stats on this one. Earl Morrill, 12 of 19 for 210 yards, was not picked through for a couple of touchdowns. Dalgazo came in off the bench, one for one for 20 yards. Marlon Briscoe on a trick play, one for one for 24 yards. Big night for those running backs. Zonka, 16 carries for 114. Mercury Morris, 16 carries for 55. Mentioned Jim Kick had a touchdown in this game. Charlie Lee got a carry. Hubert Ginn got a carry. And, well, Otto Stowe, six catches for 140 and the two touchdowns. So, Just to put things into a broader perspective before we go, the AFL Dolphins had come into existence in 1966. They'd gone 3-11. The next years, they won four games, then five, then back down to three. Then Shula showed up, and as the AFL and NFL merged, well, suddenly in 1970, the team was 10-4. In 1971, 10-3 with a tie. Now in 1972, so far anyway, 11-0. That is progress. Miami had the number one team stats and points scored and yards gained. Number one in fewest points allowed, fewest yards allowed. Two years prior, the Dolphins had been 15th in fewest yards allowed. Now, they were top of the charts. And they'd soon be turning their attention to the home stretch. The next one seemed fairly easy. New England, a team they had already beaten 52 to nothing, just lost week 11 to the 3-7 and seven Baltimore Colts, 31 to nothing. But after that game, you're going to be at the New York Giants. And then you get those bent-on-revenge Colts, the team so many had picked to win the division, if not a Super Bowl. Suddenly, Miami had targets on its backs, not just Dolphins on its helmets. Perfection was still a long way off, but for now, as Thanksgiving of 1972 was in the books... Local football fans were giving thanks to the obvious heroes, the Zonkas and Scotts and Andersons, but also to that no-name defense which had just squashed the St. Louis passing game, had gummed up the run game, and walked to a three-touchdown win. This is Josh Lewin. Hope you've been enjoying our look back. We certainly want to thank all of our guests for stopping by, and thank you for continuing to listen in. Once again, the happy final on Monday Night Football from Monday, November 27th of 50 years ago. The Dolphins 31, 
the St. Louis Football Cardinals 10.